a step, cried the sad man. Take a look down at the madman. Theater kings on, silver wings fly beyond reason. From the flight of the seagull come the spread claws of the eagle. Only fear breaks the silence as we all kneel, pray for guidance. Reason. Loaded down. 
and welcome to the Strange Jew podcast. My name is Jason Barnard. And that was Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Knife Edge because I've got the brilliant honour here of uh, welcoming Carl Palmer here to the Strange Brew. Welcome, Carl. Hey, it's great to be with you. So uh, tell us a little bit about this new uh, 4LP ELP box set, uh, the anthology. It's uh, coloured vinyl, half speed. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's one of those things you've got to go and see. It's like all different colours. It's it's a packaging process that we've gone through with the label BMG. Um, You know, it kind of sums up where the band is uh, on vinyl. Um, it's about time we did one of these. We've never really done one. Um, so there you go. It's, it's, it's complete and it's going to get be out there very soon. So as far as I'm concerned, I think BMG have done a great job. Um, the colours don't mean anything. It's just to do with packaging. Hmm. And it's really for the collectors, you know, the people that really want everything that ELP have ever done. As you know, vinyl's very popular. Hmm. So you got it. There it is, hmm. the anthology. And, uh, you know, if you're going to choose any group that deserves, uh, you know, a r- really deluxe LP set at the minute is definitely ELP and I understand you've got sort of extensive sleeve notes photos yeah, in the set yeah I mean BMG have done a fantastic job if you recall last year we had a box set mm. with vinyl in it a CD some unreleased um, recordings some live recordings one from Birmingham where I'm from there was a book in there there was black and white photographs it was a whole thing and we did about 3,000 of those and they sold out you know the collectors wanted that stuff and within a couple of months they'd all gone you know and that was it so I mean there's a, a, a new market out there where people want to collect the music they like in different formats mm. presented differently packaged differently and uh, this anthology just covers that base you know and as I mentioned we, we opened with uh, Knife Edge uh, what are your recollections of uh, recording that in the studio? Did it come together quickly? It's too long ago to tell you the truth. Knife Edge, you know, was on the very first album. So yeah. I find it very difficult to go back 50 years and be able to tell you something <laughs> about it. All I can tell you is that the recordings during those days all happened very quickly. That first album was recorded mm. and mixed within a couple of weeks. So, you know, we moved very quickly in those days. But we did rehearse a long time before we went into the studio. OK, well, I'm going to challenge you even more now. I want to take you back to the the Craig and I Must Be Mad, which I understand you featured on when you were only 15. Um, I was actually younger. I was actually oh. 15 when I, I left home and came uh, down to London for my audition with Chris Farlow. Mm. Chris Farlow being a soul singer, had a number one hit with Out of Time, mm. written by Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. Mm. The uh, the track I Must Be Mad was recorded by the King Bees, which became the Craig, right. and that was recorded in Re- Regent Sound in Denmark Street. And I think I was probably about 14 when we did that. We were influenced by The Who quite a lot, as you can probably tell when you play that track. And it was a, it's a great track, actually. And I still enjoy that one today. It's just a great, great recording. Yeah, and in, in, in terms of that song, it's still got uh, quite an avid uh, following and in some ways heavier than The Who. Yeah, no, I am very proud of that one because being one of my very first, or the very first recording I ever made, we used some phasing on the drums and stuff and um, and reverb and this and that. And it was like, it was fantastic. It was a great experience. And uh, it, it came, you know, it, it worked. Unfortunately, you know, it's one of those things in those days, there were so many bands releasing albums yeah. and singles every week. Not everybody could get through. And, you know, we didn't get through with that one. But it's still a, it's still a great tune, great piece of music and, and a great recording, which is most important. <laughs>
mentioned briefly when you were talking about the King Bees moving on and then working with Chris Farlow I've picked a track that I think you played on my way of giving how did you if so uh, how did you get involved with working for Chris well um, I was playing at Birmingham Town Hall so in the early 60s Birmingham Town Hall used to have what they call all-nighters you would start at seven in the evening on Friday and it would go all the way through until seven o'clock Saturday morning well, you've guessed it. I was in the band that went on 7 o'clock Friday evening and back on at 7 o'clock Saturday morning. That was the all-nighter. Anyway, on this particular night in Birmingham, which I believe was a Friday, we had, I think, um, uh, Julie Driscoll, Brian Auger, the Steam Packet, whatever it was, Chris Farlow and the Thunderbirds, and I'm not too sure who else. It might have been Graham Bond organization, the King Bees, probably another uh, local band, The Idol Race, or something like that, or Mop the Hoople, I can't remember. Anyway, Chris Farlow, for some unknown reason, had got the time wrong of when he was on. He thought he was going to be on about um, 9.30. So they got there for about 7 o'clock. And, of course, as they got there, we were going on. So he stood by the side of the stage and watched the King Bees, as they were called then, Mm. playing, along with his guitar player, Albert Lee. And it was after that performance, he asked me if, um, if I was interested in joining the Thunderbirds and uh, if I was to give him a call. And uh, that's how it happened. Um, I said no at the time because the King Bees had just uh, released um, uh, another single called um, A Little Bit of Soap. Mm. And we were going on a show called Thank You Lucky Stars with Brian Matthews. Um, God bless him. And uh, I said to Chris Farley, no, we're going on the television here and we've got a mm. single and we've got the push from the record company, and I think I'll be okay, but thanks for the offer. Anyway, within about two, three weeks after that, the band had broken up, the single had got nowhere, and I was about to leave school, so I called up uh, Chris Farlow and said, Mr. Farlow, are you still looking for a drummer? Hmm. He said, yeah, come on down, I'll send somebody up to get you and uh, have an audition. Um, Before he just offered me the job, now he wanted me to have an audition, but it was great. It was a great lesson in life, and... uh, I left uh, school on the Friday, left home on the Sunday, had my audition on the Wednesday in the Bag of Nails, Kingley Street. I stayed with him for about two and a half years. 
in terms of my way of giving uh, Mick, Mick Jaggers down as the producer on that, did you have much involvement with Mick? Um, I only ever saw Mick Jagger once in the studio uh, when we were um, uh, recording. He sort of um, left it to the engineer, then came in and kind of mixed it on his own. You know, that was mm. the deal. I think he walked through the studio once when I was there, uh, just listening to the sounds, and and that was it, really. Yeah, as you can imagine, I was in awe, you know. And, of course, I didn't meet Mick Jagger again until uh, later on in 68 when um, we used the Rolling Stones rehearsal room in Tooley Street, South London, and that was when I was with the crazy world of Arthur Brown. So it's funny how things go round and connect. to uh, Chris Farlow I understand you did a tiny bit of session work and I, I, I've heard that you played with the chance on, on their track Love Light yes I did I played that on that one I didn't uh, I didn't want to do too many sessions mm. um, the reason why the sessions were offered to me was because I could I could read music and I really didn't want to be known as a session player but I got asked to do that by Larry Page actually I think a couple of the King Bees played on that track oh. as well I did the I did the recording, 
you know, I've had a discussion with my family and basically we said, you know, unless I really have to, don't become a hired gun. I needed to get into a group and have a partnership and be in control of the music and be creative. And, you know, to be a session musician really wasn't the wasn't the plan. So I did very, very little of that. But that was one of them I did do. Yeah. That's really interesting you saying that, because just um, a couple of days ago, I was speaking to Clem Cattini, and one of his regrets of, about doing so much session work is he didn't get to do as much live work, which he would have done if he was in a band. Well, I mean, that, I mean that's one way of looking at it. I mean, the, the real way is if you're a session player, you get paid once. Mm. If you actually are in the group and the, you make a record, a recording, and it sells well, you get paid several times, and it might mm. even go on forever. And you have what we call a back catalogue. So you've got money sort of coming in when you're laying in bed, you know. So when you're a session musician, you get paid once and you're on your way. So it's a very short-sighted way of looking at it, really. So obviously live concerts is another thing. But, you know, music is a business, really, and you need to make product mm. and you need to own the product. You need to sell the product and you need to uh, promote it. And the only way you can do that is if it belongs to you, because the minute you're a session guy, then you've got no control. And as I say, you get paid once and you leave the studio and walk home. Well, there's no love light shining in your eyes when I hold you. And then I think about it. You know, there's no denying Then a year or two later, you uh, joined up with another uh, previous um, a guest of mine, Arthur Brown. Yes, and what happened was the crazy world were in America, and some recordings had already been made. The album had been released and was starting to go up the charts. I had um, met Arthur before and uh, and Vincent, and you know I, I knew all about it. You know, um, their road manager Mel Baster called me up and said, "Look." 
Arthur really wants uh, another drummer because Dracian Thika um, has kind of deserted the flock, as it were. I'm not too sure what happened. And uh, would you like to come in and join and be a, a full member? So I said, well, you know, I'm very happy here with Chris Farlow. So I thought about it and I thought, well, it's an opportunity to go to America. I should do it anyway. Within about two or three weeks, the album and single had reached number one. And I was on a plane hmm. and I went over and I started touring America for the next 18 months with them. So that's how it went. I've read that you featured on the uh, the B-side Music Man. Is that correct? Music Man. What's Music Man? It was the uh, B-side to Nightmare. Um, I can't recall if I did. I did several recordings uh, with uh, Arthur Brown. Yeah. Arthur Brown had several drummers, uh, John Marshall, John Eisman, myself, Dracian Thika. And on the boxes uh, in the studio, it was uh, Kit Lambert that did all of the recordings, was there as the producer. Uh, but he never filled in who was on what tracks, so no one ever knows. And if you ask Arthur mm. Brown today, you know, we're not really sure who played on what. All I can tell you is that when the band had its success uh, and was doing all the television programs and the tours of America, and we had the number one single and the album, I, I was the drummer in the band.
Arthur dis- disappeared and, and that ultimately led you t- with Vincent Crane to form Atomic Rooster? Yeah, Arthur disappeared and decided to go off and do his own thing. Not musically, I think he just disappeared to one of those communes on Long Island. And I decided to come back and uh, I just said to Vincent, you know, I hope it all goes well for you uh, here with Arthur. And we hadn't seen Arthur for maybe, I don't know, four or five weeks. And he said, no, I'm going to come back with you. So I said, well, I'm going to go back and see if I can form a band. And I said, uh, uh, maybe we'll be in touch when we get back to London. Anyway, to cut a long story short, he came back with me on the plane and um, we started chatting. And I said, look, I'll organize the management. You start writing some music. Let's get some material going and uh, we'll see what we can do. And I got Robert Stigwood from the Stigwood organization to manage the group. And we had a, a record deal with BNC Records. And then the rest was history, really. And the track that I've chosen from that debut Atomic Rooster album is Banstead. Banstead. Banstead was on the first album. Tomorrow Night was the single. Mm. And Tomorrow Night was quite an interesting track because I had already recorded a demo of Tomorrow Night. And it was during that period that I got asked to join uh, Keith and Greg. Mm. So the Tomorrow Night had to be re-recorded uh, by their new drummer that they brought in at the time. And, uh, of course, you know, it went to number one. And mm. when it was number one, I was actually still sitting in rehearsals with Greg and Keith. And, of course, I thought maybe I'd made a mistake by leaving. But uh, that was just one of those things. As it turned out, it uh, all turned out well. So there you go. Please take me
terms of that debut ELP album, the track Lucky Man, you know, uh, one of uh, Greg's tracks uh, be- became a, a hit record. It was very big in America. It was reasonably big here in, in the UK. In Europe, you know, in some markets, some uh, countries, yes, it was in the top 10. And that kind of opened the door, really, because it was such a simple tune. Um, it opened the door to the rest of the album, and people started to understand that. We weren't just a prog rock band. We had ballads. We had folk tunes. We had a bit of jazz, rock, classical adaptations. We were quite eclectic. So um, it was one way of getting in, and uh, that opened the door for us, that's for sure. You helped shape that song with Greg in the studio? Yeah, the two of us recorded that together. Uh, Keith was uh, late that day. We knew he was going to be late. So I said to Greg, why don't we try and I put something down with acoustic guitar and drums. And we started doing it, and it didn't sound very good. And then by the third take, it sounded really good, which was the take that we kept. He put some bass on it, and then he, he put like a guide vocal, and um, it started to build up. We thought this was really good. And by that time, I think it was about 7 o'clock at night, and Keith arrived, and the very first solo, the Moog solo, that's at the end of Lucky Man, was the first uh, solo Keith ever played. And luckily enough, we recorded it. So uh, Lucky Man got recorded that day in a very strange way, but it worked. It worked really well. We had white horses And ladies by the score Dressed in satin and waiting by the door. Ooh, what a lucky man he was. Ooh, what a lucky man he was. White lace and feathers. They made up his bed A gold-covered mattress On which he was led Ooh, what a lucky 
You mentioned that sort of eclectic range of um, styles that made ELP so unique. I've chosen from the beginning from Trilogy, which I think again was another hit single. That's got quite a, a range of percussion in the, in that song that that you led on. Yeah, it's just it's basically um, you know I think there's some congas and bongos on it and things. You know that was the softer side of ELP. So we just tried to orchestrate the music accordingly and. Uh, that was one of them. And a lot of the tracks that Greg did, his acoustic songs, the ballads, there was never a lot of percussion on them. Um, it's just the way it turned out. But I think there is on that one, yeah. Not been so cruel, not been 
to cover brain salad surgery uh, for many people that is is obviously a landmark album for alp but a landmark album generally i've picked one of the highlights from that obviously on the box set can evil nine first impression part two that's got a great opening section re- referring to um you know that line welcome back my friends to the show that never ends in a great great opener yes is that something that you do um, i actually still play that today with my band Carl Palmer's ELP Legacy. I just played 28 concerts in Europe, and mm. uh, that's the the second piece we play. You know, that's always been you know one of the big pieces with ELP. Welcome back, my friends. The show that never ends. It stayed with us over the years from that very recording. I think we played it every concert until the band eventually broke up. Um, you know, the end of the 90s. So yeah, that's uh, that's a landmark in the writing, and that particular album, Brain Salad Surgery, was the pinnacle of the creative uh, juices that were running through the band at the time, and mm. um, possibly my favourite album, yeah, or one of my favourite albums. And was it was there anything different in relation to the, the way that that album was constructed or, or conceived, or was it just that everything came together? It's just you know sometimes it all works, and that was one time it it all worked. We never played the whole album on on stage. 
uh, that never sort of happened with that. There were problems in doing that. I think when we recorded it, they didn't have what they mm. call MIDI. MIDI being where you can hook up several keyboards and get them all to play at once by just actually playing one. You can get the others to sound, to trigger. And of course, we couldn't reproduce a lot of brain salad surgery on stage. The tracks we could, like Welcome Back, My Friends, the show that never ends. We did. Uh, but it was definitely the most creative period of ELP. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. There behind the glass stands a real blade of grass. Be careful as you pass. Move along, move along. Come inside, the show's about to start. Performing on the stool, we were 
And then another massive hit, uh, one of the biggest really, um, a few years later, 1977, Fanfare for the Common Man. I've read that that came together quite quickly. Uh, that was recorded on a quarter-inch tape. Oh. We hadn't seen each other for two, two and a half months, and we met up in Mountain Studios in Montreal, and John Timperley, a BBC engineer, was working there at the time, and he was going to be the engineer who was going to help us with Works 1 and Works 2. Anyway, we got into the studio, and we started playing Fanfare for the Common Man, and he switched on one microphone, which was hanging out of the ceiling. He basically was eavesdropping to see what we were talking about. But anyway, we started playing. He recorded it and we listened to it and it was very exciting. And we tried to capture that same excitement um, a couple of weeks later. We tried and then we tried again a couple of months later. Anyway, we kept coming back to this one recording that sounded very, very fresh, which was the very first recording. So we bounced it across to a, a multi-track that's a two-inch tape that we used in those days. And we started overdubbing. And the recording that you hear was basically uh, the first time we ever played it together. And we just overdubbed it and repaired it where we could. And, and that was it. Thank you. 
And then a few di- few years later, ELP basically kind of d- disbanded. Was that just a reflection of the shift in musical styles? Um, I think they disbanded uh, around about end of 78, beginning right. of 79, yeah. Okay. We finished yeah. then, yeah. And then the Reformation was 1991 through to 98. Mm. And then the last concert was 2010 uh, here in London. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to kind of ask you about um, a band that you... Uh, joined or, or formed soon after ALP, and that's uh, PM? Oh, yes, Post Meridian. Yes, that was a band full of Americans. I had the opportunity through um, uh, a German record company to make us some recordings. So there were all these songs which was kind of hanging around, which we'd got, and uh, I listened to them, and I thought, well, you know, I didn't want to go straight into another prog band, so I thought I'd just mm. do something a bit different. Uh, and that was it. Uh, the band never toured. We never did anything. It was just some fun. I think we did a couple of television shows in Germany, one in Italy. Um, I might have done one in France. We did it. We did three or four TV shows, and that was it. Really, it was. It wasn't really, cons- you know, something I was going to sort of hang on to. And mm. well, maybe if the album had been a success, but uh, it was just a bit of fun, really, a bit of light relief. Mm. I, I mean, I've taken a listen to that, and one, one of the, the favourite tracks from that, that album is Dynamite. It's got a, quite a, I don't know, what the, the term used at the time was kind of new wave, but it's kind of got more of a sort of straighter, poppier side to it. That was written by John Nitzinger. Yeah, I mean, the, the album is the a pretty good album. The writing is pretty solid on there. Um, it's just, um, I suppose people never thought that I would want to do something like that because it's a bit too poppy. Mm. But, you know, I've always liked, you know, I've always liked a good song. A good song is a good song to me, you know. So um, it was um, it was a great experience. And, of course, they were all American, all of the musicians. I was the only English guy there. So that, that was an experience as well. <laughs>
And then a, a year or two later, after, after PM, yeah, you, you formed Asia? Um, Asia came together, um, yeah, sort of like um, 19, sort of 80, yeah, 81. Yeah, it started, yeah. I've chosen the track Time Again. Time Again was one of the very first tracks we all did some writing together. And um, that, I mean, that's still being played today by Asia. And this coming summer, we'll be playing that in America. Yeah, that was uh, that was a great album that came off. Um, probably it was the biggest album that Asia ever had. As you know, it was like number one for about seven weeks in America. Uh, the track Heat of the Moment and the album, I think, was number one f- for either five or six weeks. So that was a s- very successful product. Timing was right. The band was right and uh, had the right people behind it, which was David Geffen at the time. It does seem to, especially that album as well, it seemed to blend the some of the elements of the sort of more poppier sort of A&R sound with successfully with more the the progressive edge, you know. Well, I mean, that was the crossover period where really to make a prog rock album at the beginning of the 80s, there was no way that it was ever going to get played on radio at at a decent time, maybe at four o'clock in the morning in in Omaha, Nebraska. But in daytime in New York City or Los Angeles, you are not going to get the prog music played on the radio like you did in the 70s. Mm. You have to understand that uh, radio was an art form in America in the 70s because all types of music got played all through the day. And for English musicians, it was just an absolute dream to go over there and work. But once you hit the 80s, the corporates got involved with the radio stations and they started programming them. And, you know, there's a lot more advertising. So the minute that happened, the actual um, artistic content really sort of got uh, moved around. And, um, you know, there was no way that prog rock was ever going to happen in the 80s. And we all knew that, though we were all in different bands, King Crimson, John Wetton, Steve Howe, yes, myself, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Jeff Downs was the only real pop musician because mm-hmm. he came from the Buggles. Um, he's, he's in Yes now, and he, he recorded mm-hmm. the drama album with Yes. But at the time, and that's what he was all about. And we, we just, you know, got together and said, you know, we can't do what we used to do. We've got to try and make that 15-minute piece of music into seven minutes if we can, or five minutes. Still keep a bit of a prog tag, but we'll have to have some commercial music too, you know. And uh, we didn't set out to be commercial. Mm. It just happened that we had some quite commercial sounding songs. And John Wetton was a, was a great writer for, from that point of view. And it's stuff that he'd always wanted to do because he'd been in King Crimson and stuff. And I think he was a little bit progged out. So wanted to get hmm. a little more melodic. And he did. And it worked remarkably well. Yeah, and just to touch on your your drumming style, you 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 do have quite a, a unique sound in that you play the drums as an instrument. It's not just a straight ahead. There's almost a melodic edge to to how you play. I mean, I play a lot simpler with Asia because you know they are mm. songs. I mean, it's not prog music where yeah. you play unison lines with keyboard players. You've got time signatures you go through. So you know, I. I try and make it as interesting as possible, you know, with Asia, but it has to be a lot simpler just to accommodate the music and get the best from the music. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, when it works, it works really well. When it doesn't work, it's incredibly bland. Mm. And, you know, and I don't really like it. But, you know, Asia's had uh, some good albums and uh, they've, they've been fun to play on. I mean, and I'm very proud that I played on Heat of the Moment, even though it's probably the simplest album, the simplest track you could ever play on. But it worked, you know, and that's the main thing is making the music work. And that's a challenge within itself. 
Referred yeah. to ELP uh, reconvening, and uh, now you're you're keeping keeping the, the the music alive through the you know the the legacy tour that you've been doing. What are the plans in terms of um, the ELP legacy and other work at the minute for you? Well, right now, like last year, I re- released a tribute album to Greg and Keith, which was a DVD and a CD. 
and we had choirs on there. Steve Hackett played. Mark Stein from Vanilla Fudge played the Hammond organ, the C3, and sang Welcome Back and Knife Edge. Um, this coming summer, I'm going out and um, I'm playing on a, a bill that's got Yes, Asia, uh, myself, uh, CPL, and, uh, and John Lodge. And that's something which um, will be sort of quite interesting. And uh, I'll be playing in Asia and I'll be playing in my band. So the, the future's looking quite rosy, but Arthur Brown will be with me. Yeah. Arthur Brown's going to be in CPL and he'll, he'll be singing. He'll be singing Welcome Back. Uh, we'll be playing Fire. Uh, we'll be playing Knife Edge. And we'll only be playing for about 35 minutes because you can imagine there's four bands on this summer bill. So... Um, Myself and John Lodge will play 35 minutes and Aisha will play 55 minutes. And then, yes, we'll probably play about an hour and a half, an hour 20 or something. So it'd be quite an interesting package. That should be released soon, um, going on sale, I would think, pretty soon. That's uh, that's brilliant, uh, Cal. And just to close, I thought I'd uh, just, just leave the, the final track uh, over to you. And- say to you that there is one piece of music which summed up uh, yeah. English prog rock music. Uh, And, you know, prog rock being very, very close to my heart. Mm. Uh, And one particular piece, when people say to me, if you were to talk about prog rock, what piece of music um, would you you choose? And funnily enough, it's actually one that I've recorded. I've recorded it with my own band, but it originally was recorded by ELP. It was banned by the BBC at the Mm. time because they thought it was blasphemous they thought this music belonged in the church and you know you shouldn't be playing this and you know it was the days when you had to go there was a committee that could veto whether music could be played on the radio or not this is the early 70s and -hmm. the piece of music that uh, i would end up with a big big favorite of mine was emerson lake and palmer's recording of jerusalem oh brilliant fantastic that's uh, that's very fitting Thank you so much for your time, Cal. It's been, you know, a privilege. No, thank you for the interview. Very much appreciated indeed. Thank you. All right. All the best. Thank you. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.
thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's been almost 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.